Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. So welcome back. This is the final part of the Jeff McDonald series. We have gone through the crime scene, the evidence, two trials, possible motive, the release of the book Fatal Vision, and Jeff's attempt at another appeal. Thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and this has been a really fun four-part series for me. If you haven't already, go check out my social media. That's going to be Storytime Slayer on Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube, and Story underscore Time underscore Slayer on Instagram. I am going to first thank any subscribers that I have, and just know now every month you guys are going to get a bonus episode. Let's jump into it. So like I mentioned before, Fatal Vision was published in 1983, and by 1984, it is a bestseller. Jeff was blindsided in his 60 Minutes interview during his media campaign in an attempt to get a new trial. He was going to promote the book in the interview until he finds out the book only painted him more guilty and offered a potential piece of evidence and motive that nobody had ever entered into court or knew about publicly prior to 1983. That would be Jeff's use of the drug Escatrol. So I am sure it comes as no surprise that Jeff does not win any appeals for several years. So instead, he decided to take Joe, the author of Fatal Vision, to civil court and sue him for fraud, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and breach of contract. They go to trial in 1987, and Jeff's legal team argued that Joe had manipulated Jeff into thinking that the two were friends, and Joe pretended to believe in Jeff's innocence so he could have full access to Jeff's life and basically exploit Jeff so he could write a book portraying Jeff as guilty. The legal argument was that if Joe had thought Jeff was guilty before writing Fatal Vision, it would be a breach of contract. Now, the prosecution had some good points. For one, remember, Joe was believed to have infiltrated the Nixon campaign to do the exact same thing, pretend to be an insider and then exploit everyone. They also had the fact that Joe wrote in Fatal Vision, he began to doubt Jeff's innocence when he saw Jeff's lack of reaction to Helena in court. This could be perceived as Joe determining Jeff's guilt before writing the book. Then prosecutors submitted a letter from Joe to his publisher where Joe insinuated Jeff would be displeased with the book once published, indicating again Joe had made up his mind before writing the book. Another pretty big issue raised by the prosecutors is that Joe incorrectly cited his research of Escatrol. Joe cited in his research Escatrol can have a negative side effect after weeks of use, when in fact the medical book that Joe quoted stated it took weeks to months of use to see adverse side effects. I mean, I personally think they're split in hairs, but I get it. They got somebody to defend. They, they're they trying to sue him. But most importantly were the letters from Joe to Jeff. Joe didn't just take what spilled out of Jeff. Joe probed Jeff for information. The prosecution said that was to be used against Jeff to paint him as guilty. So, I mean, despite Joe's promises, no one would ever hear what Jeff said, but him and those letters and recordings, Joe put them in the book. Joe kind of manipulated Jeff to get what he wanted from him is the picture that they're painting. Joe's defense, though, was that he did not convict Jeff. 
He didn't partake in the legal case against Jeff. He didn't turn over Jeff's journals to the police or the prosecution. He simply wrote about the case from an insider's perspective, and his opinion shifted as the evidence was presented. But Joe did not go into writing this book thinking Jeff was guilty. It was quite the opposite. Joe had genuinely believed in Jeff's innocence when all of this started in 1979. Joe's defense also had some really good points. Jeff was supposed to give Joe everything, and apparently Jeff left out a polygraph exam that he'd apparently taken that was inconclusive, and the reason it was left out of the trials and everything was because they got to ask Jeff like a couple weird questions before Jeff shut down the lie detector test. So I think Joe was just using this as a way to possibly counter sue for breach of contract as well since Jeff left that out when he was under contract obligated to include everything. Jeff's defense called another writer who's also named Joe, Joseph Wombat. Wombat considered writing Jeff's story before Joe McGinnis did. But according to Wombat, he didn't agree to write the story because for one, it was apparent to him that Jeff just wanted somebody to write a book based around Jeff's version of events and not the facts. And for two, Wombat immediately thought Jeff was a guilty sociopath the minute he met him. When Wamba found out that Joe was writing the book, he actually called Joe and was like, why are you writing this guy's book? And Joe genuinely thought that he was innocent and wanted to write the book. So Wamba testified in court that Joe genuinely thought Jeff was innocent when the whole thing started. The jury ended up being hung. So Jeff wanted to try the case again in court, but in lieu of another legal trial, Joe just agreed to pay Jeff $325,000 and call it good. This is not the civil case, though, that ends Joe McGinnis's career and trashes his reputation. Joe Wambaugh had reached out to a famous journalist named Janet Malcolm to ask for her support of Joe McGinnis regarding his journalistic integrity in writing the book Fatal Vision. He and lots of other people felt that Joe was well within his rights to not disclose his personal feelings while writing the book about Jeff and that Joe did nothing wrong. I think the men thought a well-known and famous journalist like Janet would be on their side and cover this. However, after extensive research and interviews that the famous journalist conducted, she published an article in the New Yorker called The Journalist and the Murderer where she drags Joe McGinnis and said that pretending to believe in Jeff's innocence while condemning him in the book Fatal Vision was, quote, morally indefensible, end quote, even for a journalist. Joe's career and reputation were totally destroyed after Janet spoke her opinion. Absolutely done for. Like, he lost a lot of money. Nobody asked him to review books or gave him any work. He lost basically all his credibility. There's a podcast specifically devoted to that situation and the book Fatal Vision and the journalistic integrity called Morally Indefensible. It's really good. You should listen to it. So what Janet wrote about Fatal Vision and Joe McGinnis lacking journalistic integrity is a staple in journalist classes across the country to this day. I think the question is, did Joe's means justify the end? Is it okay for a journalist to lie to its subject? Interesting to me is Janet seemed to really like Jeff and vice versa. In fact, years later when she was sued, she used Jeff's attorney. 
So this is where the road ends for Joe McGinnis, but this is not where the road ends for Jeff McDonald. After 30 years in prison, Jeff actually gets another trial in 2012. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? It is on grounds of new evidence. So we're going to unpack that. For years, Jeff's legal team tried to file all sorts of affidavits and evidence for appeals, all of which were denied. They tried submitting additional evidence in regards to Helena's confession after the trial and that a deputy actually threatened Helena if she testified for the defense in court. That was denied. In 1990, they submitted an appeal based on exculpatory evidence. There was blonde fibers found on a hairbrush that belonged to a synthetic wig that was never tested, as well as hair and fibers at the crime scene. That 1990 appeal was denied. They tried submitting affidavits from people close to Helena and Greg that supposedly they'd confessed to the killings. Those appeals were all denied. They appealed that statements from prosecutor James Blackburn were unreliable since James Blackburn had been disbarred in 1993 for embezzlement, forgery, and fraud, none of which having to do with the McDonald case, so that appeal was denied. Then in 1999, the Innocence Project joined efforts with the Jeffrey McDonald's case lawyers about the DNA evidence that was excluded. So let's unpack that because it's going to be important. At the McDonald home, 28 testable DNA specimens were found. All of them could be linked to someone in the McDonald family except for three specimens. Specimen one was a hair on Kristen's bed. Specimen two was one hair found under Colette's body. And specimen three was one hair found under Kristen's nails. By the way, none of these specimens were a match to anybody in the McDonald household, nor Helena or Gregory. However, after they reviewed, they denied Jeff a new trial. This was partly because Jeff tried to add the supposed confessions from Helena and Greg in that appeal, which was aided by the Innocence Project in 1999. Jeff then argued that denying the DNA appeal went against his constitutional right because he basically had new evidence and new evidence constitutes a new hearing. So they try to argue the appeal based on the DNA evidence and a new eyewitness testimony in 2006. Long story short, Jeff does get a hearing for the possibility of getting a new trial in 2010. And it was ruled that withholding the new DNA evidence went against Jeff's constitutional right. And he was granted a new trial about the evidence. So he was basically granted like an evidentiary hearing, if I'm not mistaken. And this way he could submit the eyewitness testimony and talk about the new DNA evidence. The trial for potentially having a new trial was held in 2012. So let's talk about this new evidence. The new evidence the defense presented was that three unidentified hairs found at the McDonald's home had been left out of the trial, and they also had a new eyewitness. The new eyewitness was a neighbor who came forward. He'd been a fighter pilot during NOM and a fellow officer that lived next to Jeff at the Fort Bragg apartment complex on Circle Drive. He said he couldn't sleep the night of the murder, so he was up looking at pictures of fighter pilot jets, and that's when he saw four hippies carrying a light and chanting. Someone else made a surprising appearance at Jeff's trial to testify against him as well on the ground of new evidence. Joe McGinnis, the author of Fatal 
Vision. Joe was asked to testify about his findings while writing the book Fatal Vision on what led him to believe Jeff was guilty. Of course, we're talking about the journals that he had found and was given permission to use and look at by Jeff, including the information about Escatrol. Many believe Joe's testimony to be the most damning to Jeff's appeal in 2012. Jeff did not even look at Joe throughout the entire trial, nor Joe's testimony. Of course, the same evidence was paraded through the court from both sides, and ultimately Jeff's appeal for a new trial was denied. However, Jeff has continued to appeal his conviction. He is an appealing mother trucker. He asked all evidence be retested. That appeal was denied in 2014. His appeals in 2018 and 2019 were also denied. In the fall of 2020, Jeff applied for compassionate release because he was, quote, sick and elderly. Apparently, he has some sort of chronic condition, skin cancer, and hypertension. His legal team argued even with his kidney dialysis, the man was looking at dying within three years. They argued COVID-19 put him at a greater risk of dying. However, this appeal for compassionate release was rejected, and instead, Jeff was just placed in quarantine instead. He lives out his remaining days in the Western Maryland prison. He is 78 years old. Something I found really bizarre is that Jeff remarried while he was in prison to a woman named Catherine Courage. Apparently, the two met sometime in Baltimore many, many, many years ago. I'm going to assume either way before the murders or sometimes between the murders and his criminal trial in 1979. The pair did not reconnect until 1997 when she wrote him a letter asking how she could help him. They developed a friendship that eventually led to a romantic relationship and the couple got married in 2002 while Jeff was in the federal prison in California. Catherine was 41 at the time and Jeff was 58. The couple has a 17-year age gap. He applied for a transfer to be closer to his wife, and that's how he ended up in the Maryland State Prison. Catherine is who Jeff was trying to be released to in 2020. Catherine is said to be petite, very ladylike. She was a director at the Young Artist Theater in Laurel, Maryland. After marrying Jeff, she also became a paralegal so she could aid in Jeff's defense. Catherine has spent the last 20 years driving to see Jeff two to three times a week. She is said to have kept a bottle of wine she was given as a wedding gift in 2002 so that she could share it with Jeff when he comes home. Aww. Puke. She adamantly believes in Jeff's innocence. So let's talk about Colette's parents. Freddie was actually Colette's stepfather, but he loved Colette and raised her as his own. You see, Colette's mother, Mildred, had been married to a man named Edward Stevenson who'd killed himself. A few years after her husband committed suicide is when she met her second husband, Freddie Kassop. He, too, was a widower when his wife and daughter were killed in a London bombing. The two had a whirlwind romance and were married very quickly. Colette was 12 at the time, and Colette and Freddie were really close. In fact, Colette did not refer to him as her stepfather, nor did she allow anybody else to. Freddie and Mildred, of course, had known Jeff most of his life because Colette and Jeff met and dated when Colette was only in the eighth grade. They were Jeff's biggest supporters and advocators until they found enough inconsistencies in Jeff's stories through the news outlets and the Article 23 transcript. 
In light of Jeff's guilt, Freddie and Mildred changed Colette and the children's headstones from McDonald to Stevenson, which would have been Colette's maiden name. Then following the lawsuit over the book, Fred filed a lawsuit barring Jeff from drawing any royalties from the book or anything in regards to the murders. Of the $325,000 Jeff was awarded in court from Joe, Jeff ultimately only got to keep 50000 of it, and the rest had been split between Jeff's parents, attorneys, and Colette's parents. Mildred was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1971, and she was so upset by everything that happened, she actually tried to keep it a secret and just die, but Fred caught on and insisted that she get treatment, which she did, and she recovered. She ultimately died in January of 1994 at the age of 77, and Fred died months later in October of 1994. Their causes of deaths are not publicized, but I'm just really glad that they got to see Jeff imprisoned and that they got to change those headstones apparently when Helena had died it was five days before anybody found her remains and her and her infant son were in the apartment together and he nearly died of dehydration however he survived this case is insane but at the end of the day no evidence supported anyone but Jeffrey McDonald in this case I cannot believe anybody wanted to date him following these crimes let alone marry him I think it's really sad that Colette very likely felt too uncomfortable speaking about uncomfortable topics regarding any rough spots in her marriage if Jeff had, in fact, been taking Escatrol, like he mentioned in his own journal entries from 1970, I would bet he was taking large doses when he felt like it, like when he had to work long shifts, and then followed no regular dosing methods. I think he took them as he needed them and would likely take days off in between dosing to get the effect he wanted from the drug rather than to follow an actual weight loss and dietary prescription. I worked with a woman years ago that was prescribed diet pills and rather than following the dosage, she would take more than the recommended dose. So the prescription acted as an upper, like an amphetamine, and she ended up embezzling a bunch of money from the place I worked with and became addicted to other drugs a very short time later. Anyway, that's beside the point. Despite Jeff's reputation as an upstanding family man, doctor and army physician, that doesn't mean that he's only that. We know Jeff was also a serial cheater and a liar. So who's to say he wasn't an addict, a sociopath, and above all, a piece of shit that murdered his family? Thank you so much for tuning into this four-part series. This was um, a really big case that I just took a deep dive into, guys. So anyway, I will talk to you next week. Bye. And don't forget... Anyone who subscribes to Storytime Slayer podcast will be getting a bonus episode every month. Thanks, guys.